0: Thank you. Well, it is a great honor to be here at the Bioneers Conference with all of you. I just flew in from San Antonio, Texas this morning. We were there last night at the Esperanza Center, the Esperanza Center, uh, giving Hope is what that center does, and it's very interesting to see there, on the one hand, Esperanza, bringing together many cultures, many, well, a cross-section of society in San Antonio. Also, San Antonio is the home of Clear Channel, Uh, the radio network now also owning TV stations that has over 1,200 radio stations in this country. It is absolutely critical we have an independent media. The media the media, are the most powerful institutions on earth, more powerful than any bomb, than any missile, and the Pentagon's deployed the media, and we have to take it back. I'm lucky enough to have... Um, my brother, David Goodman, my colleague, and I hesitate to use this term in this day and age, my collaborator, collaborator. but um, David and I have written this book, Static, Government Liars, Media Cheerleaders, and the People Who Fight Back. Why the title, Static? Because in this high-tech digital age with high-definition television and digital radio, all we get is ever more static, that... Veil of lies and misrepresentations and half-truths and omissions that obscure reality. Well, what we need is a different kind of static. The media should be giving the dictionary definition of static, and that is criticism, opposition, unwanted interference. We need a media that covers power, not covers for power. We need a media that is the fourth the state, not for the state. And we need a media that covers the movements that create static and make history. So we're on this 80-city tour, and I began on Labor Day weekend in the Cape, in Cape Cod. Uh, The first night, we were in Provincetown, and each place we go, we try to celebrate the independent media that is there, do fundraisers to build up independent media, whether it is radio, television. Democracy Now! started 10 years ago as the only daily election show in public broadcasting. We were broadcasting on Pacifica and other community stations, a couple dozen of them, and that was terrific. Um, Then five years later in 2001, right around September 11th, we expanded to television, and the program has just taken off. We are now broadcasting on over 500 radio and television stations around the country, on Pacifica stations, increasingly on NPR stations, on public access TV stations, and increasingly PBS TV stations. We're on low-power FM and college and community stations. Our headlines are now translated into Spanish, so we are broadcasting on scores of stations throughout Latin America, Europe, and we're also on college and community stations through Canada, Australia, and Europe. And our Audio and video podcast at democracynow.org, Time Magazine, just called our podcast, together with Tim Russert's Meet the Press, the most popular podcasts here. I don't know how Tim Russert made it up there. But... I think it just is a testament to the hunger for independent voices. We're also broadcasting on both TV satellite networks, and I've already seen both of the networks represented here. Uh, Dish Networks, Channel 9415, Free Speech TV, as well as 9410, Link TV, which is also, Link is also on DirecTV, Channel 375. It is absolutely critical. We support this independent media all over the country and of course, on the internet, that we protect it from being privatized. Because that is the great equalizing force that we can communicate with people all over the world, why net neutrality is absolutely critical to grassroots globalization. But the first night, Labor Day weekend, Friday night, we were in Provincetown celebrating WOMR outermost radio. Then we moved on to Nantucket on Saturday, an historic island. It's the place where Frederick Douglass gave one of his first addresses against slavery for abolition. He trembled when he spoke, his body shook, because he was speaking from his own experience. He had been enslaved as a child and a teenager. He was born on the eastern shore of Maryland. He had been given to a man, Edward Covey, known as a slave breaker. The other slave owners gave their troublesome slaves to him. Edward Covey's property was known as Mount Misery. Well, he almost broke Frederick Douglass, but Douglass broke away, headed north, and changed the world. That property today, Mount Misery, is owned by Donald Rumsfeld the Secretary of Defense. It's his vacation home. He bought it in 2003 to be near, just down the road from, his good friend, Vice President Dick Cheney. That's what I was thinking about in Nantucket. The night before in Provincetown, we were speaking at Provincetown High School. So we drove up, it was getting dark, and um, just as I came to the steps of the school, I saw there was a pickup truck, and in the truck bed was a coffin. There was a couple standing next to it, Carlos and Melita Aradando. And they quickly told me their story before I went in. Carlos said it was two years ago, August 25th, 2004. They had moved to Florida, it was his birthday. And he was home with his mother. Melito was out. And the Marine van pulled up. And he thought, could it be my son Alex coming home to surprise me from Iraq? But no, it was the Marines coming to inform him that his son Alex was dead. He died in the ancient Iraqi city of Najaf at the age of 20 years and 20 days. And Carlos lost his mind. He went into a frenzy. He... Asked the Marines to leave, they didn't. He begged them to leave, they didn't. He raced into the garage and he got some cans of gas and a blowtorch, and he asked them to leave again, they didn't, he went to their van and he started to wreck it. He poured gasoline inside, he was ripping it up. His mother ran out to try to pull him out of the van and that triggered the blowtorch and everything blew up. At which point, Melita, his wife, pulled up and found her husband burning on the lawn. And that's how she learned that her stepson, Alex, was dead. Soon after that, their son, their younger son, Brian, 17 years old, called up to wish his dad a happy birthday. And someone picked up the phone and he heard the commotion and someone said something about the press being there and he turned on the television. He'd been in summer vacation in Maine and that's where he saw his father burning on national television. And that's how he learned that his older brother, Alex, who he loved, emulated, wanted to be like, was dead. No judgment, just one story in a time of war. Carlos then had to heal. He was burned on over a quarter of his body. But the physical healing, that was the easy part. It's the psychic healing, the emotional healing that he is continuing to go through. But a year later, in August of 2005, when Cindy Sheehan went to Crawford, that's when Carlos found his voice. Cindy Sheehan. She gives the speech at the Veterans for Peace Convention in Dallas on August 5, 2005. And spontaneously, she says she can't enjoy another vacation because her son Casey died in Iraq in Sadr City, Baghdad, in April 4, 2004, 40404, she says. And so she announced she would head to Crawford the next morning to the presidential estate because she had a question for the president. For what noble cause did my son die?" And she said she didn't really know where Crawford was, but she was in Texas. How far could it be? (laughs) So the next morning, she headed to Crawford with a little caravan of vets, and she took up residence in the ditch outside the presidential estate. We won't call it a ranch, because it isn't. And she just kept demanding an hour of the president's time. Now, the White House Press Corps was there, um, not exactly known for its independence, but they follow the president everywhere. And, well, the White House Press Corps is used to enjoying the access of evil. That's trading truth for access. But beware of even this embedded press corps when the president is on one of the longest vacations in presidential history. And they are there day after day in the Texas heat, 110 degree day after 110 degree day. And they're not getting much of the access they usually enjoy. But finally, they did get to ask the president this question. It shows the power of the media when they actually ask the question, because they do have this access. And they asked the president, why won't you meet with this grieving mother? And he responded. He said, I have to get on with my life, too. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that day that President Bush went mountain bike riding for two hours. He went fishing. He napped. He took in a Little League lunch, and apparently he did some reading. But he didn't have time. He didn't have time for Cindy Sheehan. And so she just kept at it, relentless, persistent. And the press corps said to her, why haven't you spoken out before? You're so articulate. You're so eloquent. And she said, I have been speaking out. You just haven't been listening. Now, if you are a regular listener to or watcher of Democracy Now!, how many of you listen or watch? Well, that is fantastic to hear and also by the way a shout out to the 16 different places right now all over the country that are broadcasting the bioneers conference and congratulations to bioneers reaching out but if you are a regular viewer listener you certainly had heard cindy sheehan before we Um, Saw her, for example, when Democracy Now! headed down to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration of President Bush in January of 2005. Those were cold, nasty days in Washington. I'm talking about the weather. This is an environmental conference. (laughs) Um, And Cindy was there. She was there along with Celeste Pala. She lost her son, Sherwood Baker, first Pennsylvania National Guardsman to die since World War II. And together they, and some other people, founded Gold Star Families for Peace. And they called ahead to the Pentagon. They wanted to meet with Donald Rumsfeld, uh, but he didn't get back to them. The Pentagon didn't respond, so they decided to make a pilgrimage to the Pentagon. They were stopped at the Pentagon parking lot, where they met by an envoy saying the secretary wasn't available, but did they have a message for him, or perhaps invited in to the Pentagon for some hot cider, for some comfort. These are mourning mothers. No, they were met at the Pentagon parking lot by the black-clad Pentagon security, and they were turned back at gunpoint. Well, beware of mothers who have nothing left to lose. And so a few months later, Cindy Sheehan headed to Crawford, and she became a magnet for so many, for hundreds, for thousands of people. One of those people was Nadja McCaffrey. Nadja McCaffrey comes from outside of Sacramento, and her son was named Patrick. Patrick McCaffrey, and after 9-11, he just felt he wanted to give back to this country, had the perfect life, wife and two kids, and he signed up. In case of an attack on this country, in case of a natural catastrophe, he wanted to be there to serve, and then he was called up to go to Iraq, and he didn't get the connection. He wanted to protect this country. What did that have to do with going to Iraq? He sat with his mother. They talked for hours. She didn't want him to go. Ultimately, he decided he should be there with his buddies to protect them. He didn't want to desert them, and he went to Iraq. Now, I come from New York, and my governor is George Pataki. And he visited Iraq, and he came back, and he said he wants to take a piece of the statue of Saddam Hussein and embed it into the foundation of a new World Trade Center. If he does that, that will be the first proven link between 9-11 and Iraq. (laughs) Uh, So Patrick goes to Iraq, and he writes home for deflated soccer balls and candy for the Iraqi kids. Ultimately, he is killed there. And when his casket was sent back, Nadja engaged in a defiant act. She invited the press corps to Sacramento International Airport. She told the photographers she wanted them to film. She told the filmmakers and the videographers to turn those cameras on. Now, why is this defiant? Because President Bush invoked that executive order that says you can't film, videotape, or photograph the flag-draped coffins of soldiers coming home. She said, snap away. Please film. My son didn't go to a rock in darkness. I don't want him coming home in darkness. That's how she chose to memorialize her son. Nadja is here today. Nadja, would you stand up? And so that's what Nadja did. And she told me just now, I haven't seen her for quite a while since I have been interviewing her, she told me just now that she is trying to set up a farm in North Carolina to help soldiers coming home who have been injured, who are wounded, that they have a place to recover. Nadja, after... After this, after she invited the press, many months later, she headed to Crawford. And then there was Patricia Roberts in Georgia. She lost her son, Jamal Addison. He was, I think, the first Georgia National Guardsman to die since World War II. And she set up a fund for him because she said she wants African-American kids to know that they could go to college without detouring through a rock. And then... And she headed, she headed to Crawford. And then there's Becky Lowry. She's the state senator from Minnesota. I learned about her two Memorial Day weekends ago. I was driving through Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis, headed to Northland College to give the commencement address in Ashland, Wisconsin. And I picked up a copy of the Pioneer Press. And there was a headline that said, Death in the Family. And it was about Becky Lowry. She's a state senator who introduced an anti-war resolution before the invasion. She confronted Donald Rumsfeld at a national conference of um, state legislators demanding to know about the no-bid Halliburton contracts that were doing no good for the soldiers in Iraq. But that's not what this article was about. It was about the fact that her son, Matt, died two Memorial Day weekends ago in Iraq. And she headed to Crawford. And Becky said, with our children dying, who will be the future leaders of this country? Well, I think Nadja and Becky, Cindy and Patricia, these are the future leaders of this country. And so by this process of people coming, the presidential estate, this town, Crawford will forever be known as Cindy's Crawford. <laughs> but let me get back to Carlos and Melita Arredondo. They, after Cindy went to Crawford, Carlos found his voice. He decided to take a coffin around the country. Sometimes miniature, sometimes large, full size. He brought it to Waco and. Crawford, I learned last night, he'd been in San Antonio, he took it across the Capitol Hill, spoke with Congress members, I saw him in Provincetown, it's amazing, Labor Day weekend, last bash, people going back to work and school, and there's this coffin coming down Main Street. It stops everyone. He says, if the war doesn't go on vacation, neither do I. And they showed me these letters, they have loose-leaf notebooks filled with documents, and one of them is, well, Brian, their younger son, is being aggressively recruited to go to Iraq. And the letter says, Dear American... And that's interesting because Carlos is not an American citizen. He comes from Costa Rica where they don't have an army. He wants to be an American citizen, but somehow he hasn't merited it yet. He has applied. It's not as if he hasn't given the greatest sacrifice an American could give more than his own life, the life of his child, but he hasn't gotten it yet. And the letter starts by saying that you can serve your country in times like Hurricane Katrina. Now that's pretty astounding, given that last year... We're just past the first anniversary of the drowning of an American city. How is it that possible that this happened in the 21st century? And you think about, more than 1,500 people in New Orleans died. Would anywhere near that number have perished if the National Guard weren't deployed to Iraq? Um, but let's look at that moment. Last year, make no mistake about it, President Bush was fully briefed. Yes, he was at his vacation home in Crawford, but he was video conference briefed. They told him this could be the big one, this could be the one they all feared, this could be the one that wipes out this American city, this could be the greatest natural catastrophe our country has seen. Now you can never absolutely predict with these ever more powerful hurricanes. Global warming, global warming. But you can never absolutely predict. But what is leadership? It is preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. What did President Bush do? He left Crawford. Did he go to Washington or Florida or somewhere near New Orleans to be in charge and command and control? No. He came here to California, and he did allow these pictures to be taken. Pictures of him riffing on the guitar of the country music star Mark Wills, whose signature song is Wish You Were Here. Could have been the theme song of the people of New Orleans. And then he flew back to Crawford. And it wasn't only him. In Salt Lake City, I was just there. We were celebrating KRCL radio. And well, let's look at Dick Cheney. He was in Wyoming, and he didn't leave when the hurricane hit, when the levees broke. And when I was at KRCL celebrating this community radio station, A young man came up to me afterwards, we were signing books, and by the way, I'll be signing in the lobby, we'll be signing static, Um, and just on the point of books, a little lesson in corporate publishing is when books like these make it, it makes room for other books. There are so many people in this country who are hungry for information. Um, The book has hit number eight in the New York Times political bestseller list. And it um, hit something like 20 on the overall New York Times nonfiction list. If it hits 15, it's published in the pages of the Times. And why does it matter? Well, unlike Lafayette Books that's here, an independent bookstore, and we celebrate independent bookstores all over this country, a lot of them just stock the bestsellers. And good people go into those bookstores looking for something different. And so it's very important that every time a book like this makes it, another book will make it. Um, If you buy two books, think about the holidays, we have wonderful (laughs) DVDs out there. We have DVDs of Harry Belafonte on Democracy Now!, DVDs of Pete Seeger on Democracy Now!, Um, And also give them to libraries, these under-resourced national treasures that also need to be supported. But since I have no time, I'm going to speak very quickly. Um, In Salt Lake City, this guy came up afterwards to sign his book. And he said he worked in a sushi shop in Jackson, Wyoming, and he was absolutely shocked that here he was watching the drowning of New Orleans on TV. All of them were, all the workers in the restaurant. And... Yet Air Force Two remained outside, that's Cheney's plane, and they shared a wall with the Secret Service and they weren't leaving, and they were shocked. He said his daughter was coming in for orders, Cheney's daughter. They could not believe the Vice President didn't leave, and it was not only the Vice President, it was Condoleezza Rice was in New York, my city, doing some high-end shoe shopping at Ferragamo. And a customer said to her, what are you doing shopping when people are dropping in New Orleans? And they took her out, the customer that is. And then there was Andrew Card. Andrew Cord is the GM lobbyist who was the chief of staff at the time. He's vacationing in New England, the General Motors lobbyist, right? What we see in Washington is the ascendancy of the oiligarchy. You have President Bush, a failed oil man, Dick Cheney, former head of the largest oil services corporation in the world, Halliburton. You've got Condoleezza Rice sat on the board of Chevron, headquartered just down the road, Uh, actually had an oil tanker named after her, the Condoleezza Rice. Andrew Card, the GM lobbyist, is it any surprise they're thirsty for oil, that foreign policy is being determined by that thirst from Iraq to Venezuela? We need a media that brings us the truth. But let me say that a side effect of the Bush administration not responding was that when the corporate media did the right thing, they went to New Orleans. There were no troops to embed with. And what we saw unfold was astounding. We saw, perhaps for one of the first times, the corporate media reporting from the victim's perspective. And it shocked the nation. You'd see bodies floating by. Then the Bush administration leaped into action and says, you will not film the bodies, to which the editor of the Times, Picayune, said, you have got to be kidding. And then you saw a young woman reporter interviewing a man who just walked up in the water, said he'd been in the attic with his wife. As her hand slipped out of his, she said, take care of the children. He was holding his boy. He told the reporter the story, turned around, and walked off in shock into the water. And this young reporter started to cry. That's reporting from the victim's perspective. That is ground zero reporting. And it galvanized the nation. It didn't matter if you're a conservative Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or a Green, a progressive. It was irrelevant. The differences washed away. It was humanity responding to humanity. Could you imagine if for just one week in Iraq, we saw those babies dead on the ground? We saw the women with their legs blown off from cluster bombs from Iraq to Lebanon. We saw the soldiers dead and dying for just one week. Americans are a compassionate people, they would say, no, war is not the answer to conflict in the 21st century. I'm the, red, the red light is flashing, and I just have one more quick story to tell. And it's a t-shirt story. It's the story of Ra'ed jarar an Iraqi architect, a blogger, who now lives in this country. And he was headed on a plane from New York City to Can- to San Francisco, here where he lived, it was just a few weeks ago, and he was getting on JetBlue. He thought he was until he was surrounded by four transportation officials, two JetBlue employees, and two TSA, and they told him he couldn't get on the plane if he was going to wear this T-shirt. You know how when you wake up in the morning, you throw something on, you don't remember quite what you're wearing. He said, what's wrong with my T-shirt? They said they thought it was threatening. He was wearing a black T-shirt with white letters that said, we will not be silent. He said, what's threatening about that? They said, it's not the English, it's the Arabic script above it. And he said, that's just Arabic for we will not be silent. And they said, we can't know that. We don't have a translator here. (laughs) And so he said, are you saying Arabic is a terrorist language? And they said, wearing... A T-shirt with Arabic script onto an American plane today is like walking into a bank with a T-shirt that says, "I am a robber." So he argued with them. He said he had his rights. He was a taxpayer, and this violated his rights. But anyway, um, according to the TSA, we called them. It was the JetBlue employee who went and got him a T-shirt. I don't know if it said New York or I love New York, but um, <laughs> he was forced to put it on. And then they take him onto the plane. He had reserved the front a seat in the front. They put him on before all the other passengers, and they escorted him to the back of the bus, I I mean plane. And then they brought all the other passengers on, and that's how he flew to San Francisco. Well, we ran with the story a few days later, and the next day some women came into our studio all wearing this T-shirt. And they were in a rush, and I asked them, where are you going? And they said, we're headed to the airport. And I asked them where they would be going, and they said, didn't matter. They're just getting on planes. (laughs) So anyway, this story then went big. And and all the networks picked it up, which was highly unusual. I mean, in this country, we live in a globalized world, and yet we are so isolated when it comes to information in the United States. But they did go with the story. And they did, well, they didn't credit us, but that's okay, because at Democracy Now!, our motto is, steal this story, please. We call it trickle-up journalism. <laughs> so- Oh, by the way, I'm starting a column this week. It's being syndicated by King Features, called the same thing as our tour, Breaking the Sound Barrier. And you can ask any newspaper in the country to run the weekly column as we reach into the mainstream because the mainstream is here in this room and it's all over this country. Most people in this country are opposed to war. And one of the things I want to say is that we are now also apparently broadcasting in Logan, Utah. Hello, you folks out there. And hello to Sergeant Marshall Thompson whose father was the mayor of Logan, Utah. Utah, the reddest state in the country. Sergeant Marshall Thompson came back from Iraq, and he's walking with his wife across Utah because he deeply believes what's going on in Iraq is wrong. A big untold story is the level of resistance in the military from the bottom to the top. But let me finish finish with this story. Um, When these women came back, from high-flying, pro- challenging high filing profiling, we had one of them on. Her name was Lori Arbiter, and she was wearing this T-shirt when she came on the show. She'd given Ed the T-shirt. They started on April 20th, uh, on March 20th, on the third anniversary of the invasion, giving out these T-shirts. Can you believe it's three and a half years since the invasion? We've been in Iraq since the invasion longer than the U.S. was involved in World War II. So she, this is their act, Artists Against the War, giving out these t-shirts, and now since the story went big, there are thousands of people who are ordering these t-shirts at Silent at gmail.com, and they're translating them into many languages, Arabic, Farsi, Hebrew, Spanish, French, and now the original German. Why German? Well, it goes back to World War II and the White Rose Collective, a brother and sister named Hans and Sophie Scholl. They, together with other professors and students in Germany, wanted to do something. They weren't Jewish. They were German Christians, and they thought the best they could do was give out information. And so they started to make a series of pamphlets so that the Germans could never say we didn't know. They did six in all. The fourth said at the bottom, we will not be silent. They were captured. They were arrested by the Nazis, Hans and Sophie, and other members of the collective. They were tried, they were found guilty, and they were beheaded. But that philosophy, that motto, should be the Hippocratic oath of the media today. We will not be silent. Democracy now.